It's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, it's, it's interesting when I get to do this because I was telling John um, when we were dividing up who was going to preach when and where, I was like, let any of the other guys preach whenever they want, however they want, because for me, the, uh, the, the joy for me in being a part of the elder team is, is getting to play with the, the worship team and lead in that way. Um, and quite honestly, the, the, the task of preparing a message for you all on Sunday morning um, is, is not a joyful experience for me, okay? So it's a, it's a challenging experience. It's a difficult experience. Um, but yet this week it was, it was joyful um, there, because there were so many things that um, this text really taught me about myself and my relationship with the Father. And so those are just really some of the things that I want to share with you this morning are the things that, that God taught me as I, as I approached um, Him and His Word um, so this morning, I want to. If you're a, if you're a note taker, here's kind of the 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 big the overarching theme because it's always it's always the the, the question that um, our team asks each other. So what's your what's your what's your big point this morning? Um, so here it is. It's a little long, but it, here's what it is: Stand firm in your faith, because your identity your identity is in the true grace of God. Stand firm in your faith, because your identity is in the true grace of God. In fact, we see that um, as Peter really wraps up this, this letter to the church. And just a reminder, this letter is to a bunch of people who are scattered all over Asia Minor, which is now called Turkey. All right, so that's the region of the world that he's talking about. They're undergoing great suffering because of their faith. Um, they're, they're losing property. Um, they maybe even, some of them may even lost their lives. Um, they're just, they're undergoing heavy, intense persecution. And so Peter is reminding them and he he closes out his letter. And that's where we're going to start this morning in verses 12 to 14. He closes out his letter with this one little phrase that, that really hooks it all for me. And I think for us this morning, he says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting, encouraging, and declaring, boldly proclaiming to you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Think about that for a minute. If you go back and listen, remember all the messages that have been preached over the last several weeks. If you haven't been here, um, go back and listen to some of the, um, the sermons online because they, they go over this idea of God's grace. Chapter 1, it was God's grace that saved us. It was by His grace we were saved. Um, in chapter 2, he talks about us becoming a royal priesthood. We are, we are these people who find our identity in being chosen by God because of His grace. Chapter 2, he goes on and talks about what Christ did. In chapter 3, he continues that theme. Even in the midst of suffering, this is what Jesus did for you. Jesus suffered on your behalf. Jesus suffered for you. So so that is a a little picture, that is a little window of of God's grace. And so Peter says right here at the end end of these verses, so stand firm in that. Stand firm in God's grace, in what God has done for you. Stand on that. Rest in that. Find your identity in that. So I, I, Peter summarizes all that, and I want us to jump back now to verse 6, because verse 6 really brings that point home for us. He says in verse 6 right there, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, if you remember last week, John finished the message um, with verse 5, which talks about this idea of Humility, clothing ourselves with humility, and the fact that God opposes the proud. And so Peter carries that thought forward into what we're going to talk about today. 
um, in that he just simply says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So when you look at that word, therefore, it's, it's there for a reason, right? Um, and so he's reminding us that your proper position, your proper place in your relationship with the Father is under his mighty hand. If you want to experience God's grace, God's mercy, if you want to be living out of who you really are, okay, who you really are as a saint, then your proper position, your proper place in relationship with the Father is under his mighty hand, right? Because if we're not under his mighty hand, then where do we find ourselves? What's verse 5 say again? Verse 5 says, God opposes the proud. So if we're not under God's mighty hand, we find ourselves in an opposition to the Father. We find ourselves against him and he against us. So as you see this first verse here, the, the thing that I want you to remember, and the point I want you to make here, the point I want to make to you this morning is, humble your, your humble posture leads you toward God. Your humble posture leads you towards God. Because your humble posture puts you underneath his mighty hand. Not outside on your own, not doing your own thing. It puts you in right relationship. When you think about that word mighty, his mighty hand, um, when you look at what the text actually says there, it actually talks about that, him being powerful, him being strong. Um, when you, when you, it, to me, it reminds me back to Exodus, when God basically is leading his people out from underneath the rule of Pharaoh. And God is more powerful than Pharaoh. Um, and God is saying, I, I am your God and you are my people and I will care for you in ways that you can't be cared for on your own. I'm this mighty, powerful hand that will care and provide for you. Psalm 37.5 talks about that. He will act for us. Psalm 55.22 says, he will sustain us. That very idea of what his mighty hand does for us. Now, it's not, it's not just to leave us there and think and for us to see that, that his mighty hand just is this oppressive. Because sometimes when we think about being under a mighty hand, we think about, well, man, this is going to be oppressive and, and rule-oriented in some legalistic kind of relationship. It's not about that at all. Because if you look, what, he, what does he go on to say? He says, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. He may lift you up. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Th think about that for a second. By, sub by submitting to God's mighty hand, humbling yourself, putting yourself underneath his rule and reign, he cares for you so in such a way that at just the right time, you're going to be lifted up. And you have the example of how that happened in his relationship with Jesus, right? Jesus is the ultimate example of, 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 a, of a human Obviously, he was fully God, but fully human, who submitted himself, put himself underneath the mighty hand of God, underneath his rule and reign, submitted to everything that God called for him, even to the point of death on the cross. And God highly exalted him. God lifted him up. God seated him at his right hand. So remember that as you, as you go into this, because, because you're gonna, we're going to see here in a few minutes that you're constantly going to be challenged by the great slanderer. You're constantly going to be hearing his voice whisper into you that you cannot trust, you cannot trust this place, this, be in this position. That you've got to get your own, that you've got to do your own thing. 
even in the act of humility for some of us. We, we can find ourselves in a, in a prideful position trying to be humble, you know? Man, look how humble I am, you know? It's like, wait, 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 stop. I mean, quite honestly, that's what we see in the Pharisees, right? They, they, were, these, they were these godly men who chose to pursue the Father, chose to pursue God, but in their pursuit of God, somewhere that thing went awry, and all of a sudden, it became this very legalistic rules and regs, and, and they became very prideful in their humility. And we even have the example of the one Pharisee who's praying, and, and he sees the beggar on the street corner, and he's just like, man, Father, look how good I am. I don't want to be like that guy. You know? But see, our humility should lead us toward being under that mighty hand. That's where it should lead us. And that's why he goes on to say, and it makes sense, verse 7, verse 7 then makes sense in the midst of this. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Think about that for a second. Cast all your anxiety, everything. Matthew 6.25 talks about not being anxious for anything. Okay? Because he even cares for the little birds of the field, Right? If he cares for them, how much more is he going to care for you and take care of you? For some of you in this room, this is going to be a hard statement that I'm getting ready to say to you. But I need to say it anyway because it's true. We have a little saying in our, in our, in our house that we've been, we've been going over lately. Is it, is it kind, is it true, and is it necessary? Okay? Um, and so, right? I got, I got it right, see? Kind, true, and necessary. Well, what, I got, what I'm getting ready to say to you is, is that. It's going to be hard, but it is that. It's this. Anxiety and worry is a form of pride. Anxiety and worry is a form of pride. Now, for some of you, you may be looking at me going, how, how can that be? Because isn't, isn't, proud, isn't pride this, this just raging arrogance and you're shaking your fist and you're, you know, um, you're giving God the bird, what, whatever language you might have in your mind about what you think about pride is. Let me, let, me, let me let you think about this for a second. This scripture right here says, cast all your anxieties on him. Not just the ones that you think are important. Not just the ones that you think you can't handle. Not just the ones that, that, that you think should be taken care of in some other way, but all your anxieties on him. Because see, when you don't do that, you are saying to God a variety of things. It might be, my anxiety is too big for you. This worry is too big for you to handle. God, I don't think you can, I don't think you and your sovereign omnipotence really can take care of this one. So I'm, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to keep stewing with it. I'm going to keep wrestling with it instead of casting it to you. Or it, it might be this kind of arrogance. It might be the arrogance and pride that says, God, I've got this. It's really not that big a deal, okay? It's, it's not that big, a, it, you know, it's not significant enough for you to have to take care of, so I'm just going to carry it myself because I can do that. I'm, I'm self-sufficient. I don't need you in this moment to take care of this little situation for me. I'm going to do it myself. Gang, that's still pride. That's still being proud and saying to God, I've, I've got this. You know? 
Those of you that have children, you see it play out all the time in your house, right? When they say the word no, right? When they say the word no to you, I've got this. That's what they're saying. I've got this. I don't want your path. I'm going to do it my way. Don't help me, right? Don't you love when you have your, your kids are starting to learn things and you're grateful that they're learning things, but then you're trying to guide them and help them, you know, to, to maybe do it better or get to the solution quicker and, and they, they throw a fit or they push back or whatever, however their personality plays out, they do those kind of things, right? That's, that's pride. That's, and that's a, that's a little picture of what we do to God on a regular basis in this area of anxiety and worry. And gang, here's, here's the deal when you look at this. The end of verse 7 says, he wants you to do that. Why? Because he cares for you. And in those moments when you're not throwing your anxiety on him, what you are saying to him is, I don't believe that statement. I don't believe that you really care for me. And so I've got to take care of it myself. I've got to hang on to it myself. And that's pride. So I want you to see this morning that this idea of humility, humbling ourselves before the Father, is putting us in a right relationship, getting us in a right posture with him, saying, I need to be completely dependent on you for everything. Because that's not the message that you're going to get communicated from the great deceiver. In fact, look with me in verses 8 and 9. Point number two is this, don't let the slanderer deceive you. When you see, when you see down there your adversary, the devil, when you see that word devil, that, that literally means right there, Peter uses the word for slanderer. That's literally what he's saying. Do not let the slanderer devour you. So he says, be prepared. Remember back a couple weeks ago, 4.12, 1 Peter 4.12, you know? Talking about the same idea, being prepared. Don't be surprised when suffering comes upon you. Be prepared for the enemy. That means be on guard, be sober-minded, be watchful. Be looking around. Be aware of your circumstances and your situations. The older I get, the more I realize that I can't multitask. You know, And you can't either, okay, by the way? You can't. You think you can, but really you're just you know, kind of pushing pause on one activity while you do the other one. Uh, but you can't really multitask. I got to be focused on this. I got to be always aware, always looking around, always watching. Because the slanderer is going to come at me. How is he going to come at me? Well, he's going to come at me in the ways we've already talked about. Um, he's going to come at me by, by whispering to me. Charles, you're not good enough. You're not good enough for the Father's grace. You're a sinner. He's going to lead with that. He's going to constantly call me a sinner. That's not true. I'm a saint. I've been saved. I'm I'm part of the royal priesthood. I'm a part of a chosen people, a holy nation. That's my identity. That's your identity if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Yes, you sin. We do commit acts of sin. But that's not what defines us. Because see, that's something that we do. What defines us is what Jesus has already done. And what he did for us was that he redeemed us and he saved us. So we're his kids. We're part of his kingdom. 
But the enemy's going to whisper those kinds of, of, of things to you. Or some of the other things that we already talked about. He's going to say to you, you know what? Your, your, your sin, your acts of sin, they are just too big for God to take care of. You've just messed up one too many times. And oh, by the way, you messed up. It was so awful that Jesus can't do anything for you. Those are the kinds of ways that he is seeking to devour you. Or that God can't be trusted. That's another one. I mean, because what he's going to do is he's going to say, look at your circumstances. Your, your circumstances right now are just, they're awful. So God can't be trusted. I mean, if he could be trusted, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, let, he wouldn't let you go through this. He wouldn't let you just be swirling the toilet bowl. He wouldn't let you go through this suffering. He wouldn't let you, I mean, you, you, hear, that, you hear that phrase over and over again from him. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't. And you listen to that long enough from the great slanderer and you buy into that message. And you're like, that's true. If God really loved me, he wouldn't. And you fill in the blank, whatever your deal is. And that is the enemy devouring you. That is what's going on right then and there. You are being devoured slowly but surely by the enemy because you're believing his lies about who Jesus is, about who God is, and about who you are. And so what does that do? That begins to isolate you from the Father. It begins to isolate you from the people that care and love and want to walk with you and, be a, and share the load with you. And you find yourself alone and, and easily and easily able to be devoured. So resist. Peter says right here, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. That word right there is, is an active word. It's not a passive word, okay? It's this active word of, of where you are putting your full weight into it. But now catch the deal, though. It's not, it's, it's not you trying to be some super Christian, do these super Christian feats for God. Hey, look what I'm doing. I'm resi- you know. Okay, it's, 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 not, it's not the imagery of, of you, um, t- to, use my, to use what I've been doing at CrossFit lately, it's, it's not you of having this great big load and you, and you are just trying to bear up underneath it and go, look, God, look how great I am doing for you because I'm bearing up underneath this great load. That's not the kind of resistance we're talking about. Because what does he say? Resist him firm in your faith. The resistance I'm talking about is just faithfully submitting yourself, humbly submitting yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's the resistance that you apply to the enemy. Think about Jesus when, when he was in the wilderness and, and the enemy tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. There wasn't any superhuman acts of faith on Jesus' part, was there? No, he just quoted scripture at Satan. Because Jesus knew who he was, knew where his identity was. It was in his relationship with the Father. And he was demonstrating to us, trust God. Trust who you are. Trust what God has done for you and will continue to do for you. Put your faith in him. Not in your acts, not in your deeds, but in him. That's how you resist, firm in your faith. 
And then he adds one other little caveat for us in verse 9. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Knowing that, your same, knowing that the same kind of resistance is being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. See, gang, we're not the only ones going through this. And even at the time, the, the, the folks in Asia Minor, they weren't the only people going through this. Because, see, sometimes when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the midst of difficulty, we're in the midst of, we're tempted to listen to believe the lies of, of, of the enemy one of the things that we're believing is, man, I'm, I'm the only one going through this. I'm out here on my own. I'm just doing my thing. And God, no one else can relate to me. No one else can relate to the kind of suffering, the kind of frustration, the kind of things that I'm experiencing. And Peter reminds us that that is not true. Your brothers around the world are going through the same thing. And they're bearing up. I, I've got this... This book that's, that's, that's had a pretty significant impact on my life, um, um, it's, it's uh, written, well, it's, it's not, his, not the guy's real name, it's, the author's name is Nick Ripkin, um, so he was uh, one of our missionaries uh, for years in closed countries, and so he, he wrote several stories of, of believers who, who suffered um, under, under great persecution and great stress and, and tragedy because of their faith, and um, one of the stories that, that hit me, I just want to read you a little bit of it this morning. It's, it, it's of a man by the name of Dimitri. And, and I just want you to see um, what I just said, that, that, it, that Dimitri wasn't some super believer in the midst of his, his extreme persecution and suffering and difficulty. But he hung in there because of he daily submitted to the Father, knowing that being under God's mighty hand was exactly where he needed to be. says this, Dimitri, he was a pastor, by the way, and spoke for his faith. He was in Russia. At the time, it was the Soviet Union. Um, The authorities moved Dimitri a thousand kilometers away from his family and locked him in prison. His cell was so tiny that when he got out of bed, it took but a single step either to get to the door of his cell or to reach the stained and cracked sink mounted on the opposite wall or to use the foul open toilet in the far corner of the cell. Even worse... According to Dimitri, he was the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals. He said that his isolation from the body of Christ was much, was much more difficult than even the physical torture. And there was much of that. Still, his tormentors were unable to break him. Dimitri pointed to two reasons for his strength in the face of torture. There were two spiritual habits that he had learned from his father. Disciplines that Dimitri had taken with him into prison. Without those two disciplines, Dimitri insisted his faith would not have survived. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand attention by his bed, as was his custom. He would face the east, raise his arms to praise God, and then he would sing a heart song to Jesus. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Dimitri recounted the laughter, the cursing, the jeers. The other prisoners banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protests. They threw food and sometimes human waste to try to shut him up and extinguished the only true light shining in that dark place every morning at dawn. There was another discipline, too, another custom that Dimitri told me about. Whenever he found a scrap of paper in the prison, he would sneak it back to his cell. He would then pull out the stub of a pencil or a tiny piece of charcoal that he had saved, and he would write on that scrap of paper, as tiny as he could, all the Bible verses and scriptural stories or songs that he could remember. When the scrap was completely filled, he would walk to the corner of his little jail cell where there was a concrete pillar that constantly dripped water, except in the wintertime when the moisture became solid coat of ice in the, in the inside surface of his cell. Dimitri would take a paper fragment, reach 
as high as he possibly could and stick it on that damp pillar as a praise offering to God. Day after day, week after week, year after year, for 17 years, he lived this way. He put himself under the mighty hand of God. He demonstrated not superhuman acts of faith, but just humbly submitting to the Father, humbly reminding himself that God has me, God knows me, God cares for me. He truly cares for me. They kept working on him, kept trying to break him, kept trying to break him. He got to a moment of despair where he was about ready to uh, sign the piece of paper that said he recanted his faith in Jesus Christ and they would let him go. That's all they were wanted to do. They just wanted him to recant and they would let him go. Um, that's all he had to do. Um, and that very night that, that he was at that pit of despair, his, his family was praying for him back 2,000 miles away. And the father let him see that. Um, miraculously let him see that, that his family was praying for him. So the next morning when they, when they came to get him, when they came to ask him to sign, he said, I refuse to sign. And he laid the pencil down. And uh, so they began to drag him out. It says this, as they dragged him down the corridor in the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east and they began to sing. Dimitri told me that it sounded to him like the greatest choir in all of human history. 1,500 hardened criminals raised their arms and began to sing the heart song that they had heard Dimitri sing to Jesus every morning for all those years. Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, who are you? Dimitri straightened his back, stood as tall and proud as he could. He responded, I'm the son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. The guards returned him to his cell. Sometime later, Dimitri was released and returned to his family. There was nothing superhuman about what he did. Faithfully praising God each and every day. Faithfully clinging to the scripture that he had memorized and knew. Faithfully remembering who he was and who God was. Dimitri actively opposed the enemy who wanted to devour him by being a faithful servant. Because see, Dimitri knew what verse 10 promises. The one who calls us is the one who will sustain us. The one who calls us is the one who sustains us. Because see, 17 years may seem like a long time, but it was only temporary. Even if the suffering happens for our lifetime, for our lifetime, for however long we're on earth, that's still only temporary compared to what eternity is. So look here, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He'll restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So I want us to remember this morning those things, that it's temporary. It's just short-lived. Secondly, God is the one that called us into it. God has called us into our relationship with him. 
He called us into this place that we're at right now. You're not, you are not here by some circumstantial accident. You're not, you're not here this morning by accident. You're not here in Springfield. You're not in the job you have. You're not in the family you have. You're not in the situations that you have by accident. God has called you into a relationship with him, and he's called you into these places. And then, and then here's the thing that I fear. I don't know about you. This is kind of a personal testimony for me. When it says God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, sometimes I believe the enemy in that moment, and I think, no, God's really not going to do that. If I step into this thing, if I step into this battle with both feet, if I submit and put myself under the mighty hand of God, humble myself in that place, then I'm going to get beaten up, then I'm going I'm, I'm to get broken, I'm going to get used up, and I'm going to be worthless to everyone. And mainly myself. So I don't, I, I don't want to be in the battle. I don't want to get in the fight. I, 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 don't want to, I don't want to share what God has done for me because I'm afraid that God won't restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. Maybe you live there too. But gang, that is the enemy devouring you. That is the enemy devouring me when I believe those lies about this truth of Scripture right here. And at just the right time, God will sustain us because he is faithful and he keeps his promises. He is faithful and he keeps his promises. He carries that idea on into verse 11. It says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now that seems just kind of like a doxology, but it's more than just that. Um, one of the commentaries that I read um, was written by Tom Schreiner, and, and um, uh, Schreiner says this. He says, uh, Peter emphasized here the sovereignty and the power of God in the words that he used. So if you look at the original language, he's using words that really reference God's sovereignty and God's power. He is the God who permits suffering in the lives of his children and even allows the devil to rage at them. Um, he is the sovereign God, but he is the God who cares. Because, see, the dominion belongs to him all of this belongs to him forever. And God wields a mighty hand on behalf of his people. So we should be full of comfort knowing that we are on the victorious side where there'll be much celebration. So this morning I want to remind you, going back to that very, that very first title, are you standing firm in your faith because you recognize your identity is in Christ? It is in the true grace of God. So how do we respond to all that this morning? Well, here's, here's as John and I talked this week, um, he shared with me just an idea that he had heard from another pastor, and I, I love the way this guy laid it out. And I laid it out kind of a little bit in my message this morning, but I want, I want us to really look at it as we close out this morning. Here's our response. Here's, here's how I think we need to respond and be prepared for the great slanderer so that we can stand firm in our faith and under the mighty hand of God. Because, see, he's called us to submit to him and trust him in the midst of the battle, so we need to be ready. So, so how can we be ready? First way is this. As we think about, because this is really all relational, okay? Um, so the first relationship that we need to, to 
um, be prepared for how the enemy's going to attack us is this one. God to you. Okay? God to you. That's, 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 that's one of the ways the enemy's going to attack us. And what he's going to say is, like I've already said before, he's going to say, God can't handle your worry or anxiety. God can't handle what is going on in your life. So your response to that is, no, that's not true. God can handle. God will handle. God has handled. And even when I can't see it, I know that God cares for me, even in the midst of this situation, when my circumstances may make me feel otherwise. You know, Dimitri, 17 years at some point, he's going, man, I don't know that God really cares for me. Why would he take me this far away from my family and isolate me with no other brothers or sisters around? It's just me and him. But God knew that he could bear up underneath it. God, God had given him the songs to sing each morning. God had given him the words to remember from Scripture to sustain him. And that's all he needed in that moment. So for you, know that the enemy is going to come at you in that way. So be prepared. Be prepared to trust and recognize in those moments that no matter what your circumstances are saying to you, what is going on in your life, that God cares for you. The second one is this. You to your brothers and sisters. That's another way the enemy is going to attack you. He's going to say to you, no one else is going through what you're going through. No one else can understand. No one else can relate. Have you ever had some of those thoughts? I know some of you have because we've had conversations. Or just said, man, I, 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 don't, I don't think you can understand my situation. Now, maybe I've not been in the exact identical situation that you've been in. But there are other brothers and sisters that have gone through what you're going through. And again, God is faithful to sustain you. So have, take hope in verse 10. Take hope in the fact that there are other people that are going through the same thing you're going through. I don't know about you, but that's an encouragement to me. I'll take you back to the gym for a second. When I look around and other people are suffering right along with me, I'm like, you know what, I can do this. I, I, I can bear up underneath this weight. Um, so when I, when I look around the church and I've got other brothers and sisters who are praying for me, encouraging me and going, you know what, I, I've been through that same season and God sustained me, God carried me. You can trust the Father. He is faithful. He cares for you. That is why we don't need to give up meeting together. That is why we as a church put so much emphasis on community. Because in the midst of community, we can lift each other up. We can, we can walk beside each other. We can point each other to Jesus. We can speak these truths into each other's lives. Because when you're out there on your own, it, it, it's easy for the enemy to come at you. Third thing is this. So God to you, you to others, you to yourself. You to yourself. Some of you may be saying to yourself this morning, you know what? I've taken my turn at suffering. I've done it long enough. I'm not doing it anymore. I don't see an end in sight. So I'm going to take matters in my own hands. Because I don't think God is working fast enough. You know? 
He's not, he's not, this ain't happening quick enough. And I'm tired of suffering. I'm worn out. I'm weary. I'm at the point of despair. See, it's in those very moments. See, that, that's, that's, the enemy, that's the enemy slandering the Father, saying he's not being quick enough. Why should he let you continue to suffer? It's in those moments that, that, that you need to turn to his word and see that no God really cares for you. That's what in, in verse 7 says, right? He cares for you. It's true. It's true. And then the last one, you back to God. You back to God. The enemy's going to come at you and say to you, you know what? You're a big boy. You're a big girl, right? You can do this on your own. You don't need him. I mean, come on. Quit, quit, quit being a weakling. Quit leaning on the crutch of Jesus. And you've, you've heard that said publicly, right, by people. Religion is just a crutch. It's just a crutch. Stand on your own. Think for yourself. Make your own kind of decisions. Pick your own course. Choose what you want to do and do it now. But that's the enemy. That's the enemy saying to you, just, just push God away. Saying you've got this. But see, it goes back to verse 7 again. The Father's saying to us, I care for you way more than you care for yourself. Because see, you can only see, you, you can only see what exists in this lane right here. Picture if this is if this is your life, this, this path of carpet right here. You, you can only see what's in the what's in the parameters of this path here. That's all you can see. So you're making decisions. You're trying to take care of things and do things that fit inside just this little lane here. And see, the Father sees as far as the east is from the west as it relates to your life. And so the decisions and the, and the, and the way that you are living when you're saying, God, I've got this, is only focused on this little square. And God's saying, you know what? But there's something that's going to happen way over here that if I don't refine you in this moment, when you get way over here, you're not going to be ready. You're not going to be ready. So I, I, I'm, I'm, letting, I'm letting these things happen to you right now to prepare for you for something that you can't see and can't imagine. And when you get there, you're going to be like, oh, now I know. Now I see it. I'll give you a little story before I wrap up this morning from my, from my own youth. Um, so uh, one of the things my youth pastor used to do before we would get ready to go on a mission trip is we would do a pre-trip training kind of a thing. And so um, we'd always have to practice what we were doing. And so um, back then, that was when youth groups, you know, we, we would go to, um, we lived close to Branson, um, Missouri. I grew up northeast Oklahoma. And so we would go up to Branson and we would do like these little Bible clubs like we did last summer, you know, in people's homes. Um, we would do them at the campgrounds for parents, um, just as a way to minister to their parents and stuff. And so, so we would practice those in, in neighborhoods in our own town. Um, and, the, and the two weeks before we went on the trip, my team, um, for whatever reason in that moment, we, we had, I don't, it, it felt like 100 kids, okay? I know it wasn't. I, it was probably only like maybe 20 or 30. 
but it felt like to the five of us, because we were all teenagers, we were running the show. He wasn't there. It was our deal to figure out and run. Um, he had trained and equipped us, and, and, we, and we, just, we had kids just all over the place. And it was a miserable week, okay? Let me just tell you, it was not fun. Um, I mean, we didn't know how to discipline well. We didn't, I mean, just trying to, trying to teach all these, I mean, you can imagine, right? You know, four years old to seven, eight-year-olds. I mean, I mean, it was just, it was brutal. Um, in the midst of a freshman, okay? I was a freshman, freshman guy. Um, and so my youth pastor just said, man, man you, you, you better just be ready, okay? Because God, God's going to be doing, God's going to do something with you guys on our trip um, that he's preparing you now for this. And I was like, yeah, whatever, you know? I was just like, I'm just glad that week's over, <laughs> you know? Get me to the fun part, you know? And sure enough, our team got stuck in the one campground where that week there were a gazillion kids. And we were more prepared and able to do what we needed to do because of what God did, did to us um, in the midst of that preparation week. That may seem like a silly little story about what God did for a teenager a long time ago, but that's just a, that's just a, a little window of, of what I think God does regularly with us. And so as you respond this morning... Remember, the enemy's going to come at you in those ways. He's going he's to he's try to get you to question your relationship with God, your relationship with other people, your relationship with yourself. But you know what? God is faithful. If you will trust him, if you will submit to him, if you will put yourself underneath his mighty hand, live humbly, you can stand firm in your faith resting and trusting in who he is and who you are, and he will sustain you. So let's pray. And here's what I want you to think about during this response time. So Jonathan's going to come and, and just explain what we do here um, with our communion time. But before he does that, I just want to say to you, if you're a believer this morning, um, and, and you've been believing some of those lies. You've been living, you've been living in such a way that, that you've been resisting the Father. You've been, you've been worrying or you've been not trusting, whatever. Before you come to this table, just, just take some time to just confess and say to, say to the Father, Father, I've, I, I've, been, I've been living way too independently. I've been living as someone who's been prideful and arrogant in relationship to you in these ways. Be specific with him. And just confess those. Knowing that his grace is sufficient for you, he will, conf- he, will, he will forgive you. And then come to the table and celebrate what he's done for you. If you're here today and you're a guest, um, or, or you're, you're listening to this message and you're going, you know, I, I, don't, I'm, I, don't, I don't really believe. The enemy has been sucking me into, into this lie that I need to do this on my own. I need to do my thing. I don't need God. It is that. It is a lie. You do need Jesus. Because there will come a day when your life is over and you won't, and you won't have the opportunity to respond to the Father. And you'll live in eternal separation from Him. And that will be unbearable. So I, ask, I, I plead with you this morning. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. 
respond to what you're hearing God say to you, that I care for you. I love you. And I want you to be a part of my family. I want you to be a part of the kingdom. So respond to him. Let me pray. God, this morning I thank you for this message. I thank you for these words of scripture this week that impacted my own life. God, I pray that we won't live as people who live pridefully. God, I pray that we will be people who will humble ourselves under your mighty hand because you care for us. That we will cast all of our anxieties on you, Father, because you care for us. Father, we will resist the enemy in faith because we know what you've done for us and we know who we are. We are your children. We've been saved by you, Father. So help us to resist, to stand firm in our faith. In your name I pray.